Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 21st, 2020. I am here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello! And filmmaker, Kath Tolentino. Hi! We are going to be talking about the influence of foreign money on filmmaking. We are going to be talking about a actually possibly related issue, which is pay transparency and the low rate of pay for entry and even mid-level jobs in the film industry. We're going to be talking about a, a neat bit of tech news that is yet another cool feature for your phone that's really relevant to high-end filmmakers. All that and an Ask No Film School about paying back your investors this week on the No Film School podcast. So the first thing we're talking about this week is foreign money, both in terms of foreign investment and in terms of foreign market uh, for films. And is it affecting the quality of films that get made, the content of films that get made? There was a recent op-ed in Foreign Affairs talking about the, you know, the influence of foreign money in the movies that get made. Obviously, there have been a lot of stories about the influence of China in the last decade or two, about, you know, movies famously where the initially the villain was Chinese and then they changed the villain to being, say, North Korean or another sort of ethnicity. There have been a lot of stories about that. Um, there's also specifically the story of the Sony hack where Sony made a movie about Kim Jong-un in North Korea and then North Korean hackers hacked Sony. Now, like partially that is um, North Korea's fault. I also have talked to a lot of people who've been like, well, yeah, but Sony was also very lax in their cybersecurity and uh, a modern corporation should probably be more advanced whether or not they're making movies about uh, targets who like to hack. So it's not as simple as that. What's, what what I found really interesting about this, and the reason I specifically want to talk about it is something the foreign affairs writer, columnist, Kai Rostlala, gets wrong. And that is, in the 30s, chaplains, uh, this is a quote, in the 30s, chaplains of the great dictator took on Adolf Hitler. And they were listing this as, you know, an example of how, well, movies used to not care about tackling foreign subjects that were controversial. This is total horseshit. Every major movie studio in the 1930s had an office in Germany. They would fire Jewish employees at the Nazis' requests. That happened at Warner's. That happened at other studios where they had like people who were working for them in the twenties who were not who were Jewish. And in the thirties, the the Nazis were like fire that person, and they did. Um, there were no other except for the Great Dictator anti-Nazi movies before World War II. Nazis came to power in thirty-three. Before forty-one, except for the Great Dictator, there are just not anti-Nazi movies, and it was because of the German market. And all of the studios were too chicken shit to give up German revenue because they wanted to get all of the money they possibly could. The only reason The Great Dictator got made is because Charlie Chaplin could do whatever he wanted because he was Charlie Chaplin. And people tried to stop it from getting made. <laughs> um, and what the German companies did, which is the same thing that happens a lot now, is the German companies said, uh, the Nazis said, all right, not only will we not let you play this movie in Germany, if you play this movie anywhere in the world, we won't show any of your movies. So Paramount, if you show this movie anywhere on earth that we don't want you to make, we'll not show any Paramount movies in Germany. And Paramount and Warners and all of the other classics were too afraid to lose that German revenue. And so they worked, there were offices in Germany where they worked with the Nazis and the Nazis had an office in Santa Monica. You can still uh, hike to it up in the Pacific Palisades where they had like a representative of the Nazis in Hollywood looking at scripts and giving feedback about what would play in Germany and what wouldn't. Um, so it's, uh, 
to say that the industry used to be better at it is a lie. Um, I, you know, obviously the industry does a really good job of pretending it used to be better at it. And like, championing things like the great dictator but then daryl zanuck also tried to get an anti-nazi movie made um and he was an independent producer he wasn't with the studio and he couldn't get his anti-nazi movie made so like it's just a little frustrating that like even this person who might be making an interesting argument has still fallen under the propaganda of hollywood fought the nazis and it's like no they didn't not until the last possible moment were they willing to give up that revenue so i think that this isn't like a new thing we're looking at in terms of like world politics affecting movie content yeah, uh, it's a really good point. I think that it's it's kind of like a, there's a version of hindsight is twenty twenty that's sort of like, um, without knowing the context of the great dictator, it just and the moment it just looks like oh this was an anti anti Nazi film that was made bef- you know during that era so it must be representative of an anti Nazi sentiment. Um, it's it's not the case if you know the history of the moment but also the other thing that sort of blinds that that ability to recognize that is that as soon as that line of revenue was cut off by the actual involvement in world war ii of the of the united states well then hollywood became a propaganda machine so we're very familiar with how many anti-war movies anti not anti-war sorry pro-war anti-nazi movies were made in the early 40s, well into the 40s and beyond, like World War II and fighting Nazis became a very popular, uh, you know, cinematic convention past that point. So it's sort of hard for people to wrap their mind without knowing like what the what the cinematic universe was like in the 1930s. But if you watch movies from the 1930s, they often have a very agnostic, non-committal attitude towards the goings on of Europe because they, that's what we had in this nation. Um, it changes a lot once you're at war. Um, I think it's an interesting point though, just in general, that to be reminded that one, you're like saying this isn't new Two, we don't talk enough about, you know, how powerful like the Chinese market and influence is over our movies. Like, do people even know, like most people, what, what Tencent pictures is Tencent is a massive conglomerate in China that is behind and part of the funding of some of the biggest blockbusters that come out here. Um, not to mention tons of other media, uh, you know, like the ma- the new Top Gun movie, for example, will be their movie um, along with Paramount. But that, that foreign money that, that helps fuel the industry is definitely um, dictating to some extent what we're making and how and why and it's you know it's just uh it's part of the landscape now it's and it's and we're not there's no way hollywood is an industry that makes money they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them right so it's important to keep it in mind and also like that i don't think we should we're not going to see blockbusters buck that you know it's just not going to (laughs) happen yeah i also feel like i mean like you said it's like it's part of the landscape and i think it's worth noting that um in this case i feel like power is a two-way street like yes china's money and china's audiences are influencing what we make and at the same time we're talking about like american cultural hegemony like spreading our our stories, our characters, our superheroes around the world for international audiences. And that in itself is an act of power. 
and like defining what the culture is. I don't know. Maybe this is getting a little too philosophical, but, um, but money is philosophical, right? Yeah. I think it makes, I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, like we're talking about studios that want to be extending their reach to international audiences. So of course they're going to be trying to make something that, that I guess plays to an international audience, which is extremely difficult to balance, you know, considering how many different ways there are of operating politically as a nation, how many different belief systems there are in the world right now. I don't know. These are my thoughts. But I mean, also, it's funny that you mentioned Top Gun because Top Gun, the original Top Gun, didn't need international money because, but it did need a tremendous amount of Department of Defense to s- support. And I imagine the new Top Gun also got a lot of that Department of Defense support. So when you're looking at like what are the narratives that are being crafted in both of those movies, you know, it's a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, the Department of Defense reads scripts, they give script notes. Uh, even on Iron, like they do, they had script notes yeah. on Iron Man. There's a script, like there was a moment where Iron Man was supposed to make a comment about veteran suicides, and the Department of Defense cut that line. Not the director, not the screenwriter. The Department of Defense cut this line about veteran suicides. Iron Man. Is there like a job description? Is there someone in the Department of Defense whose job it is to like read these scripts or like watch these movies and then like give notes? That's crazy. Yeah. There's media relations. I I've met the media relations guy for the Navy SEALs. He's super nice. He's a listener of the show. Shout out Duncan. Um, <laughs> so he worked on the act of valor Navy SEAL movie that was shot by Shane Hurlbut. And he reached out to me on LinkedIn because he enjoyed the podcast. And then I visited him at the seal compound. So full disclosure, I've met with one of these guys. Um, <laughs> That's how you know so much. Yeah. But I mean, but like, yeah, there are, there's a whole department of defense thing. Uh, what's weirdest about it is you don't send one copy of script to them. I mean, this might be out of date, but you had to send five copies of the script to them as if they don't have a copier. I'm like, you're the department of defense. Like, why do you have to send five copies of the script? I don't understand that, but. Um, Can they just send yeah. PDFs? Why are they sending paper copies? What is wrong with the world that we still have? I mean, this, this, this is possibly very out of date info. Although yeah. the film industry in general was still no. doing paper copies until very be, recently. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they're still forcing some people to look at and print paper copies. That kind of inefficiency is what we pride ourselves on. <laughs> Isn't Tarantino all paper copy because he's afraid of theft? I thought like for uh, once upon a time in Hollywood to get it financed, you had to go to the building go into the room, read the script and leave. Like there was just a paper copy. I think I, like, I'm sure because he also refuses to pick up a cell phone or, anything, or look yeah. at a computer or any of those. Things. Yeah. Um, but, but so basically what this article is hinting at is the audience does have some dictatorial power in terms of the desire for a mass audience does change the content of a movie. And like, that's something we can all acknowledge, but then we, you can also say that as you're, you're a, you know, the interesting thing for me when I read about or learn about, there's an amazing podcast called Behind the Bastards, which has a great story on the Nazis collaborating with Hollywood. Check it out, Behind the Bastards. Um, when I re- learned about all this stuff, it's an interesting thing to remember that, like, I always thought when I was a little kid, I was like, oh, my God, that movie makes a billion dollars. Like, they're not going to care about $30 million in a market. Um, but the thing to remember is that the margins on these are always like there's always risk and you're always trying to put together as many territories as you can. And like big markets like Germany and like China, these big markets like go into the math, these studios put together of trying to put together 
that big picture and then guesses about what that audience is interested in or the censors in that country will allow. Because that's the thing is there's numerous examples of movies where it's like, we hope to play in China and then the censors wouldn't allow it and there goes X amount of revenue um, come into play. Yeah, I mean, it. it's just, uh, it's how this whole thing works, you know? It would be somewhat naive to believe that you could make a movie that of that size that covers these topics that's supposed to reach a global audience that doesn't have to tread carefully in some way. Um, it's just not the way it works. Well, yeah, but except The Great Dictator. Still a great movie, still holds up, and said fuck you to Hitler and didn't care about the market. You know, that reminds me of something that I think um, is worth stating it's very hard, as we all know, to like make it, you know, or like have any kind of, you know, get your films out there, get your content seen, whatever it is. It's always been hard. It's still very hard. But there is a whole other level of hard that we don't always think or talk about, which is to be able to actually do what you want. <laughs> like, it's like that kind of thing, like The Great Dictator, like you, you, you elucidated really clearly why like, that was Charlie Chaplin at a point in his career where Charlie Chaplin could do whatever he wants. Like there are very few people who ever, when we see a movie and we're critical of it, which we should be, and there's no, and it's totally reasonable, but we have to realize that there's so many factors, including, you know, the notes from the Navy SEALs or (laughs) the department of defense, right? Like there's so many factors that like, it's very hard. We think, we like to think that that director, writer, director is like a final decision maker of some kind. And they are in some ways, but like, ultimately, very rarely can we look at one person and say they made all of those decisions. Like there's just so much. And it's so, it's a whole other layer of hard to get to a place where you're allowed to put out a story of a piece of movie or TV that isn't so filtered by other people and their demands and other gatekeepers and power structures. And it's like, yes, we should still be critical of what the final product is and all the different ways we are, but we should also be understanding that very few people get to do like speak truth to power. Like it's just very hard to also break through to the mainstream audience, you know, or you just work with a smaller budget and accept a smaller audience. Like, you know, I was listening to an interview with one of the Coen brothers the other day and they were talking about like, they like, they're like 20 to million dollar budget range because it's lower pressure in terms of audience. And if every market internationally doesn't love it, that's okay. And they're going to have some breakout hits, but they're just going to get to keep going. And I think there is an argument here to be made that like, if you want to make a movie, like I'm not going to compare uh, Seth Rogen's the interview to the great dictator. Um, <laughs> yeah, please don't. <laughs> but if you want to make a movie where you're like making jokes at a dictator's expense, which I think is a noble effort. Like, I don't know that the interview necessarily reached a noble goal, but I do find the idea of like mocking despots to be like pleasant. In a uh, juvenile Team America, way. Team America world police did it to some, yeah. like, they, they, they spared, they pulled no punches, but those guys were in that. I don't know that Matt Damon is a despot, but. <laughs> but like, but I'm just saying like, sometimes people reach a place where they can't, Seth Rogen probably could be more pointed if he wanted to. I don't know. But yeah, I, I hear you. I think the fragmentation of the audience, the various niches that form is a good thing for a lot of creators. Well, just like lean into, like accept that you don't have to necessarily make a $175 million movie. Um, not that anyone, most people even have that choice. 
But like the Coens probably could have aimed at $170 million movies. But with that comes this pressure to simultaneously make a movie that does not offend any of our trading partners, that will not offend any censors worldwide, that will fit within all of these boundaries. And maybe those movies aren't necessarily as interesting. It does make it when one oh, of those absolutely. movies is interesting, I, really wonderful. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I totally agree. Oh, that, no, like sure. when you then take all that into account. Like, if you have to please all these people, you're going to end up with a way less interesting product. That's how we got Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> I mean, think you're anti-Crazy Rich Asians. You well, did not I'm, enjoy it. I'm glad that it got made. I did not enjoy that film. And I think it was like, it was a political film. It was all about like strengthening relationships between the u.s and china and like you know the visibility of asian americans and like showing that actually yes like asian people have buying power like we can they can also be a major audience segment in the american market you know um which is great also to acknowledge because sometimes the entertainment industry gets like blinders on and it thinks like the only audience is like the white male like 18 to 35 <laughs> like, they're like that's the only big audience we have to target over and over and over again right so it is good like it was great I'm glad it was made but it was like it was a political move more than it was oh. i think more than it was a great movie uh, relevant to this issue as well like it's a movie that like compulsory military service is a big part of life for that generation of people in singapore and the author moved to America to avoid compulsory military service, which was like a big dramatic issue. And yet it is painting this picture of 20 somethings with no, like, like it's just this bubble of this world with all of these other issues that are like relevant to these characters lives completely cut out. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of respect the author for creating this like pop bubblegum rom-com. Like, I think that's a really savvy move and I think that's very smart but I think for the movie to not even hint at like the militaristic background that underlies any of that is interesting. Mm. I was just going to ask because it, because the thought had never occurred to me, but now I'm, now I'm in fan, now I'm in a fantasy land that Charles has triggered. When you mention this idea of, of this inappropriate joke in Iron Man that was cut because it was problematic. I suddenly thought like, you know, there's probably in an alternate timeline a twenty to thirty million dollar Iron Man movie that stars Robert Downey Jr. that has those kinds of jokes that I love. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, how much better would it be? Like, like I, I guess I'm I'm asking a question that I'm answering myself, and maybe you guys would disagree. But I feel like if we had, if we lived in a universe where we had way more of those, and then everybody would be getting more content they enjoy. Because I personally feel like the the force to make something appeal across many, 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 you know, groups, focus groups, whatever, dilutes the value in the voice to a degree where I become kind of like, blah, like I'm not that interested. It's not that funny to me. It doesn't have any teeth or whatever. But I said when you said that, I thought, wow, there's a there's totally a version, and I'm sure the creators behind those movies were 100 percent capable of making it. And I just don't give them enough credit, which kind of goes back to my other point, which is I think it's those creatives who are responsible. But it's really not. They could have totally made like a super interesting, weird Iron Man movie that I would have loved. They just couldn't. They weren't allowed to. Well, they would have been allowed to if they would have been willing to give up the DoD's free airplanes. Like all of a sudden that that $30 million movie would have had no free airplanes in it. Like, I mean, I remember this goes back. I remember working on a $50,000 movie 
when I was 19. And one of my jobs was to go to a local county hearing because we wanted to shoot in the cemetery and the people at the county hearing, which was like, this is rural Ohio. It was like eight people in this county hearing. Just wanted to know what, what scene we were shooting. And like, <laughs> I just sat around and it, it was awesome. They were really nice. But like, if you can imagine a rural Ohio county meeting, um, it was like there was a football game, a high school football game happening and we had to wrap up early so we could go to the football, they could go to the football game. <laughs> but, you know, they wanted to know what scene we were shooting in their cemetery. And then we got permission to shoot in their cemetery because I, I guess because I seemed nice. I was also so young. Um, <laughs> and that probably helped. In retrospect, that's probably why they sent me to do the ask. Um, <laughs> but like these are all, everything in a film is a negotiation and it's sort of about like, what is it? you want to make and and what are the sacrifices you have to make in order to make the thing you want to make yeah i mean i remember uh, my one of my producer friends was recently telling me um just sort of like a story of warning about getting into tv directing which is something that i aspire to do and she said she has a director friend who directed a feature did well on the festival circuit and then got hired to direct tv and finally landed a job as a showrunner and then once this person was running a show, realized to their dismay that they had to answer to 30 different people who all had notes about the direction of the show. <laughs> and it's like, that's the price that you pay. 30 different people that are all working above the showrunner at the studio level or you know whoever developed the show that this person then has to answer to. It's like well, and I'm almost I mean, impossible even, to make a good show with that many people that are giving notes. It seems crazy. But even, even that is an oversimplification because you're saying above them at the network, but like, it's not just the, the studio or the network. It's also like key advertisers, like right. key advertisers get involved in creative conversations about shows, which is insane. Mm -hmm. But you're like all of a sudden, you know, like Burger King is paying for the season and so, like, what scenes can move to a burger-related place? And you're like, what the fuck? So it is, a, it is a complicated thing, navigating. So I want to move on to our second sort of headline-y topic this week, which is a story Kath brought to our attention that we wanted to talk about, which is a post that's sort of been going, I don't know if viral is the right word, but it's certainly been getting a lot of interaction on Facebook. And it's part of a big conversation that's happening in general right now, uh, which is pay transparency. It's a post by... Um, someone who worked on, I actually, I don't know that I'm, since I don't know this person, I'm not going to out their personal details. I'm going to say it generally, um, just in case you weren't shared with this post, but it's a person who worked on a, a popular uh, cable show, uh, a cable show that the vast majority of people have seen. If not, you, you know of, it is a cable show. It's not like when you find out your friend worked on a cable show of like alien McMasters and you're like, <laughs> Oh, I've never heard of that show. This is like a cable show. Pe everybody has seen. I love um, I've seen all masters. <laughs> I know it's so <laughs> great. So, it's hilarious. Um, and you know, they were a post supervisor on the show and they made $21 an hour and you know, it was roughly a 60 hour week. So they were making 1300 a week. Um, but it was officially a 60 hour week, but they actually estimate they were probably closer to a hundred hour a week. Cause you know, uh, if you haven't worked on a movie lately or you haven't worked specifically in post lately, although all of movies is like this, it frequently starts, you know, you wake up, you check your email before you eat breakfast. You're responding to some emails while you're making food. Um, I had friends who used to get calls when they were in the shower in the morning. Uh, I had a friend who used to, he was a writer's assistant and the writer bought him a waterproof phone. 
Um, <laughs> because my friend used to say, I'm in the shower when as his excuse for missing calls. And so literally the next time he met with him, there was a waterproof phone waiting for him. Um, and that's you know, the day, well, that's the day you quit and you move yeah, back yeah. home and you leave LA forever. Sorry. Yeah, that's the you, you move to Missouri and you get a job as a lawyer. Um, and then, you know, if you're on, I mean, I've done this in LA where I'm in a car with someone or I'm in an Uber and I'm emailing. Obviously, you can't do it while you're driving yourself. In New York on the subway all the time, I'm emailing. Um, and this was a New York based show. And then, you know, it'll regularly go. I mean, I've responded to emails at midnight before going to sleep and waking up at six again the next day. I know everybody has done it. And so, you know, this person's argument is I made effectively 13 an hour. And for managing this incredible post workflow. And this person wanted to talk about pay transparency. I personally believe politically in pay transparency. I think anytime someone's like, ooh, we don't talk about what we make, like, or talking about what you make is so awkward or rude, I think that's a deliberate effort by the powerful classes in this country to to make people not talk about money in a way, because if we all talked about money more, we would have more power, solidarity, and leverage about getting more out of the system. I think it's a political act to talk honestly about what you make. I'm a city employee, so you can look up what I make. There's a website where you can look up what everybody who works for the state of New York makes. So I have no shame about what I make. Um, But I don't think anyone should. Like, I think we should all be talking about what we pay. I remember one time there was like a conversation about what we were getting paid. And like, I was a gaffer on something and somehow it came up what everybody was getting. And then like the DP took me aside and was like, Oh, we, we actually shouldn't talk about it. A couple of the guys are out for free. And I was like, well, but shouldn't the guys out for free know that they're not the only ones out for free? Like, oh, fuck. What the, That's so bad. So fucking, and I was like, why are they out for free? We're all doing the same thing. It was so fucking weird. I, I didn't work for that DP for very long after that. Cause I was like, this is so weird. So I think, I mean, I think it's a beautiful thing, pay transparency. I think the next step from pay transparency is what can we do to get more leverage? And that's the problem. The problem in the system right now is um, how broken out it all is. Like, first off, I'm a big believer in unions and we should get the post supers in the post union and we should get post coordinators and a whole bunch of these sort of like, quote unquote, they're called management jobs, which is why they're excluded from the union, but they're not. They're just hardworking coordination jobs. So all of those people should be union represented. But then the bigger issue is like, how do we get the unions onto all of these diverse shows? Because the thing with like the big cable networks is like, it's not like you work for the cable network when you make a sh- when you're working on a show. That cable network usually buys the show from a production company, and usually there's like an hourly rate. Like someone like OWN, um, I'm trying to think off the top of my mind. OWN pays like a hundred thousand dollars an hour. So if you're doing an hour long show for own, which is 42 minutes, right? You have a hundred thousand dollars to produce that 42 minutes of content. So you're a production company. You're taking a fee off of that, um, which is paying for your rent and paying for your salaries and paying for all that. And then, you know, let's say it's hundred thousand dollars. You're taking $30,000 for overhead. So you have $70,000 to make 42 minutes of content and you're shaking out how you're going to do that. One of the things we need to do is we need to work on getting those numbers up because those numbers haven't gone up very much um, in a long time, like the per hour fees. But another thing we really need to be conscious of is like realistic scaling of expectations about like how many hours people should be willing to work, how many hours things realistically take. And these are all things unions help with, like working on a union production you're always working with a team who's used to saying, actually, no, that you can't do that in three days. That takes six days. Oh, you know, if I, res- I don't respond to emails on weekends, I don't respond to emails after a certain time. 
And like a union really helps you navigate all that. Um, I also think a union gives you solidarity because part of the problem is that, you know, film used to be a better paying job than a lot of other things. But at this point, it's not. And a lot of those other things, the pay has stagnated so much in North America over the last decade that a lot of people are like, well, you know, you're only getting 1300 a week, but if you left us, like, what would you do? You know, I have, I have so much on this because this comes so close to my, <clears throat> my life experience in the industry. Um, I was a line producer and production manager for a while. And I did a lot of the kinds of projects you're talking about where, you know, major networks were involved or being delivered to or paying our production company or the one I was working with a budget for an episode or, or a pilot or a couple episodes that would be on real TV that, um, you know, were cable often um, that involved some major names. And the thing is the, the way you outlined it is, is correct or was accurate is accurate to my experience. You get your lump of money, you'd break up the money, as a line producer who worked for a production company, you know, you break it up between what the company gets, what the EPs are getting, what the creative is, is negotiated for, um, like above the line on camera talent and writing, and you know, name producers, there were often many, and then the rest for your crew. And one of my things always, and I tried to do this on every level of production I ever worked on was just a most favored nations, which Basically, just means you give everybody the same number when they're at the same level. So, a gaffer um, and a key grip will get the same. A grip and electric will get the same day rate, uh, and a hair and makeup will get the same day rate. And you'll just do that. And these shows that I did were often non-union. There were some unions that were they were involved with, and some unions they aren't. But what's interesting, and what was interesting in my experience, was that I was not in any kind of union. So I did many jobs and I'd worked way more out. So it was like, Oh, we don't have a first AD on this segment. Like it was a sketch show. So you'll be the first AD on this, but we can't credit you as that because you know, we're DGA or whatever. And you can be the, so that means like you have to make a call sheet and like, you have to do this and that and like all kinds of managerial work or you, you can be, you know, you're, you can't be the production manager or the UPM because that's, there's a, that's a, there's a union for that, but you can, we can call you a line producer or a producer or whatever. So you get a producer credit on a real TV show, you know? And I think that, you know, for me, I burnt out on doing that kind of stuff very quickly because it was only really one step away from the stuff where, like you, you mentioned, Charles, where people work for free because in this industry, and it was a step away, you know, I was being paid, but, uh, and I was really happy to be getting paid, but it's a burnout job. You know, you work really hard, and I did post supervising as well. Um, you work really, really hard, and nobody likes you because nobody likes those people <laughs> on productions. And you answer to the people at the very top, right? And you are a pain to the people in the crew below the line. And you don't make a lot of money, and it's hard to be in any kind of union for that. And I, just couldn't continue. Like, it's just not a fun, sustainable, like for some people do, you can make it into unions and stuff and that can become your career. And that's great. And I know those people, but my, my point is just, I think it's like pay transparency is important because it should be known that, you know, 
if if someone's working that hard and doing five jobs and like an EP who is famous, who everybody's heard of is taking a big cut and not ever showing up once, which is often the case, right? Um, it's just the not talking about how much you get paid is part of the, is part of the problem. But uh, back wrapped into that original point of pay transparency um, as a line producer, I would often have to be this villain who was also hiding what each department's budget was from them or what people were getting paid because I didn't get to make the decision. And you would be like, you're an instrument, you're a tool of that, of that would, I think you call it like, it's a class thing, right? Charles, where it's like, you're an instrument of the ruling class in terms of pay where they don't want everybody in the crew to know how much everybody else is making, but you're the one who keeps that secret basically (laughs) and like doles out those paychecks and stuff. And it's just unpleasant. And you know, it's a problem, probably a multiple field, but it was one of my big issues with working in production personally was I was just kind of tired of, of doing all of that. And also now we're all remote in the world, right? More and more people are working remote. So our work day or our work week, like, is it 40 hours? Is it 60 hours? Is it 80 hours? Does the hour at breakfast count? Does the hour like, like there's clocking in and out is really hard um, when you're working remote and from home and on the weekends and you get an email and you shoot off another email and how do you bill for that? So these are big, important questions I think to ask. And, but my, you know, my whole rant is I'm really just, I, I I think I strongly support pay transparency because I think it does lead to organization and, and power. But I also, um, I think that creating, like we can all do little things like, Trying to make sure that a set we run, everybody at every level gets paid the same is just a good practice that people can commit to. Like if you can't pay everybody the same and you have to hire a few people for free, maybe, you know, you need to change your plan. Yeah, I feel that. I, I worked as a production manager for a long time as well. And um, I think it's tough because like you said, you are the person who is kind of responsible for like in some ways like shortchanging people a lot of the time because oftentimes, you know, these budgets are not uh, as full as you would want them to be. And so you have the job of trying to talk people down on their rates and also you're getting paid a flat. And sometimes that flat, you know, you could end up working a 16 or 20 or 24 hour day. Um, is It's a terrible job. <laughs> yeah, and I mean you're right. You have to you have to negotiate people down. You have to lie to them about what you have available. Yeah, and you can't. T- and then the other added thing is like they'll want things in the budget, and you're going to have to be the one who says no. Mm-hmm. And you're also not the person. Like it's just you're always that person. You're always in the middle and the bad guy. And it's uh, it's a terrible middle management situation to be in. And, yeah, I have a lot of questions about this. One is like, why has the rate for that job not changed in? however many years it hasn't changed why isn't a management job considered like a possible union position um it feels like well, it should be you know some of them are like i said a upm there is like That's there right. are yeah. there are some but i my thinking is that if you fall under the producer the whole producer category is so fuzzy and i think that there's a tendency there to um treat it all like it's soft skills. That's the thing I've encountered in my career 
was that it's like, well, that's all soft skills. You're not a craftsperson. Like you're not a DP. You're not an editor. You're not a director. You're not an artist. You're not an artist or a craftsperson. You're like a spreadsheet manager. <laughs> and I think you get treated like you are repl- very replaceable and very like soft skilled. That's That's the only way I could describe. That's the way I perceived it. I mean, for me, it always seemed like the reason why they didn't get the producers in general don't have a union. And the reason why is because, well, they're not organized. You know, the producers are the ones who are getting back end and the producers are the ones who are often like taking a cut of every project, even if they're not really working on it or even showing up. And the producers are the one who's or like the unions are negotiating against. Yes, they're so fighting. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So when reality television and then some of this is spread out of reality television came out they initially gave everyone a a producer credit editors are often called story producers in reality to avoid giving them union status writers are called um directors are called field producers like there's all these things to avoid working with the unions because they don't want to pay better rates but i think what we're really talking about is we're talking about like a radical cultural shift in the overton window and i think the pandemic i mean the overton window is a specific political thing like think about like a year ago versus today how much more realistic it seems that like aoc could someday be president i mean obviously this election is still a shit show and and biden is a total centrist but like we're definitely in a place where like the over like the youth are like oh wait a minute actually capitalism might be terrible and maybe we should have socialized medicine which is like so you know medicine shifted because bernie sanders got out there and very specifically ran a presidential campaign on Medicare for all. And that helped shift the window. And we need to shift the window in this industry tremendously on what working and living standards are like. Like we forget that, you know, everybody worked film industry hours in the 1880s and 1890s in mines. And then the miners got guns <laughs> and said, everyone was a PA. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, in, before we had strong union battles, like literally like blood was spent to get us a, f- a weekend and a five-day, eight-hour work week. And we don't have that in film. But I tell you what, there are other unionized industries where you have a five-day work week and a weekend. And that's wonderful. And you have eight-hour days. And like the film industry, actually, you know, you read interviews with 60s and 70s filmmakers and they're shooting eight-hour days. All of those movies, you like The Godfather, eight-hour days, five-day weeks. Like until the 80s, until this vast... You know, basically what happened is filmmakers still wanted what we wanted, but um, films are often budgeted in days. You know, you get 30 days, you get 40 days. And in the 80s, international companies started buying up all of the film studios. So all of a sudden you're making a movie for Sony. Decisions are being made about how many days you get to shoot in an office in Tokyo or an office in Culver City. Not like, you know, in the 30s, you could go argue with the studio boss. Now the person making that decision is somewhere far away. You still have the ambitions you always had. You still want to make this movie. You still have all your shots. So everyone was like, oh, well, I only get 30 days. I'll just run them longer. I'll yeah, go the nine dream, hours, they said. Right. The dream factory aspect of it is makes it very hard to effectively push back from the worker's standpoint. Like someone wants yeah. to do it for free. That's the problem. It's like someone wants to do it longer. Someone's willing to go an extra hour. Someone's willing to blah, blah, blah. And one of the things we can change culturally is we can stop seeking that out and we can stop prioritizing that. Like, well, there's two guys here, two gals here, and both of them are the same in terms of qualification. But this one is like going to give me like 10 extra hours or whatever. Yeah. Like, well, that's an easy choice from an employer standpoint, right? Well, we can also stop repeating trauma. Like, like there's so much in the film industry of like, well, I had to do it, so you should have to do it too. 
And like, there's so much of the systemic, like, I, you know, I earned my bones by working seven day weeks, 12 hour days for my entire twenties and didn't have a personal life and didn't do anything but work on film sets for 10 years. So you should have to do it too. And it's like, you know, I'm even seeing it on all these like uh, Facebook groups for reopening Hollywood where people are like, oh, maybe this is a great opportunity to like look at eight hour days after the pandemic. Like that'll be safer mm-hmm. for everybody and and all that. And there's all this pushback on the on these groups where people are like, I got into the film industry for the 16 hour days. I love it. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> yeah, like, um, that's just- a, it's, a, it's a badge of honor in some, you know, set life communities. But I remember in my early 20s ish. I had a friend who was a PA who was working as a PA on multiple. He had a string of, um, and you know, he only got this job because he was extremely well connected. That's how crazy it is out there. But he was working as a PA on a string of big budget movies, like major, major movies with big stars and big directors. And I did like a couple days to help out. And I was like, no way, man. Like, like he was miserable. He worked so hard for PA wages. Like, yeah, he had, to, he had to rack up the six hundred or the six hundred days to get. Yeah, and I was like, like I just did a couple, and I was like, I'm not doing that because at least on the little projects, you had proximity to to power, you know, like because like if you worked as a PA on a little indie, like the director, you got to know you schmooze with the set. Like if you PA on a Chris Nolan movie, like you're not going to see Christopher Nolan ever, you know, like unless you hand him a script or something. And, and, and you're not allowed to look him in the face. I'm not saying that's true about Christopher Nolan. I'm just using that as, you know, random examples. But. Mm-hmm. I just have been doing a lot of thinking in quarantine. And it's not just a film industry problem. I mean, if you look at, like, the disrupting technologies of, like, Uber and Lyft, for example, that are just, like, bypassing all the labor laws. Their only disrupting technology is not not following labor. <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly. there's nothing else that... Like, and the same with Airbnb. About Airbnb the is, yeah. <laughs> why don't we just not pay hotel workers to clean these? Forget about workers' pay- rights. Yeah. Yeah. That's the disruption there. It's a huge profit margin increase. <laughs> and I'm just looking around and like, you know, I've been having a lot of chats with my friends about, um, you know, being on unemployment now. I personally have not figured out how to get EDD to give me any money. But um, those are my friends who successfully applied for unemployment because, of course, there's no film work are making more than they were before. And, and we talk about this and it, it feels like, wow, finally, this is what it could be like to not be struggling every day. You know, like maybe there's a way of doing things that could allow us to be happy and actually um, be able to save money. And I mean, I'm 31 years old. Very few of my friends my age are married. I know one person that has bought a house, like no one's having kids. I mean, I just don't know. Like, when's that going to happen? Like, how are we supposed to be able to live our lives and continue building the next generation if we don't have the funds to do it? And I'm, yeah, the, there's been a lot about how the millennial generation has just been hit so hard by all the event, the historical events like that, that it's just the timing has been awful. Like we've, we put a whole generation behind the eight ball basically. Yeah. I have a question for you, Kath though. How many times a month do you order avocado toast? (laughs) (laughs) It's all my fault. It's all my fault. That's the thing. I like, you know, 
I try it. I don't spend a lot of money. I don't go shopping. <laughs> I, I, I need food. No, but like you shouldn't even feel any obligation. Like you should punch me in the face for that question. No, like totally. you shouldn't like, <laughs> like I, I didn't mean to make like, cause people should be allowed. Like there's this weird thing. Like there's a whole generation of people who don't seem to understand that the entry level job you got in 1980 that allowed you to like take care of your wife and kids and buy a house and buy a new truck every four years. Like, that job does not exist. There's a name for like that generation film, too, Charles. The boomers. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it, the boomers. Like, you know, the film industry operates, somebody at Vice once said Vice operates on a 20-20-20 model, which is um, uh, hire 20-year-olds, pay them $20,000 a year, and work them 20 hours a day. <laughs> and, um, you know, and like Vice has actually done a lot. I know somebody in their 40s who works at Vice now and makes a nice living and like Vice is normalized, but like, the film industry, because of that glamour we were talking about earlier, historically is one of the worst underpayers of all the industries of like, you're 20 something, you have dreams, you're willing to work hard because you think that, oh, if I work hard, there will be these like middle-class jobs that I can then like make my way to. Yeah. It was 10 years in the industry before I looked around and I realized like, oh my God, all of you with these middle-class jobs, you're, you all fucking know each other. You all went to like crossroads together. And none of you did what I did for my twenties. You all like had these weird executive jobs at 26. Mm. Like, like there was no, like I, I ended up starting a production company at 29 because I, like, I was like, there is no other like beating my head against this thing for a decade. Like didn't seem to have made any progress towards moving up any kind of like I, yeah. to a middle class. And that was like we've, class we've, existence. We've gone long on this topic, but I, I think it's a, very applicable or interesting, I hope to people, but I, I really tried, like I made an honest effort at like, I want to have like, you know, a, I don't want to, I don't know what to call it, but like middle-class film industry job. And I felt that's why, you know, I, my story at the beginning of this segment, sort of like, it was really hard to not feel taken advantage of, to not work way too hard. It wasn't like I was like clocking in and out from nine to five and like collecting a reasonable amount of money. And this was in a to a very different era economically. Like I, I know, you know, Kath, your story reminds me of a friend who, you know, has written, like has major writing credit on multiple things that have been out on major platforms and like his collecting unemployment now and is making more that way. Like, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's just crazy. Like, it's crazy. just crazy. Like, and I, you know, and, and of course I also know people who, you know, have completely, you know, risen and, and, you know, EP big shows and, and are doing great. And, but the point is like, it's very hard. It's just like, it, especially now it's very hard in the entertainment industry to make a decent living without killing yourself. Why? <clears throat> like, why, why are we doing this? <laughs> well, yeah. I think one thing we can do is we can say like, like be the change you seek. Like, the next project I do, I'm not going to shoot 12 hour days. I'm just over 12 hour days. Like, I don't see why I'm going to do them. Like, I'm going to do 10 hour days. Mm. I personally have stopped responding to phone calls or emails about work after six o'clock at night. Mm. I just don't. I see them come in. I don't respond to them. Like, there's nothing that I need to do now. It's a boundary I draw for myself. And like, as I put together my next projects, like Chris Nolan shoots 10 hour days. And like, Chris Nolan has a lot of power. But like, I also think up and down the spectrum, we can just start making that decision individually. Like we can join together with groups of friend filmmakers and can, we can say, all right, how about all of our, I mean, is this time for like a dogma 95 style middle-class filmmaker, um, 
revolution like declaration like when, like should we make was, a declaration uh, of like we are middle class filmmakers <laughs> and this is what we think filmmaking should be i'll fucking write a draft I'm of it we'll get the shit going. i will sign my you name be thomas, you can be the thomas jefferson of that i i <laughs> will say as an ind- as an indie film producer which i have been as in addition to being like a upm or non-union whatever you want to call me when i was producing my own passion feature I was all about those 12 hour days, those short turnarounds, every loophole I could find. I mean, I also worked myself to the bone, but I was a piece of shit producer in the sense that I was like expecting a ton. I was, you know, I was giving people as little as I could. And I was, you know, and it, 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 that's the only way that I could make it. You know, that was just the only way. And I regret, um, I regret giving into that, the culture of that, just because it was like, uh, and I will, the one thing I'll say in my defense is like, I was willing to work harder than anybody and I was taking nothing because that was the only way it would work. But that doesn't make it okay. That, that's just like, it's just like I wasn't taking complete, I was taking advantage of myself as well, I guess. But payoff for me was much bigger. You know, it was my, you know, I produced the thing. It was my project. I wrote it. And I think that we can all, like, I would just, I know it's hard not to do that because I've done it. I think it's, it would be great if we could find a way to, like you said, Charles, like group people together in a mission to not approach the process that way and be like, look, let's all get behind this, but let's be reasonable and fair and, and find hours that work. And, you know, I, as a producer, you find the, the gaffer who's like, Hey, we're coming up on second meal. You, that person becomes your enemy. Like that shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe there's maybe there's a possibility here <clears throat> because people are starting to see that like a quality of life matters. Um, the there's a growing income divide in the United States that's really like threatening our nation, and so when we are approaching investors and funders, if we come in with the angle of we are trying to do this in an ethical way that will create positive relationships on set, positive long-term collaborations and be healthy for people and not be exploitative. Maybe there are people out there that want to front that kind of money, you know? Well, also if we did some sort of like ethical filmmaking pledge, we could probably get filmmaking like film funding organizations to agree to it. Like there's a lot of independent, sort of uh, film finance orgs. And if we could get any of them to sign on as well and say the projects we finance, we expect to be run along ethical lines. I love this. Yeah. I have this vision now, Charles, of like all these name filmmakers coming out and saying like, I will sign, you know, they've done this with inclusion where you can qualify if you have diver- enough diversity on your behind the camera, not just in front of the camera, then you can qualify as a certain, and I think Jada Pinkett Smith has had, has something to do with this. So I'm not, I'm fuzzy on the specifics, but so someone in the world can correct me, please do. But I, but th- th- there could be something about like work about like ethics and you could have like, you know, the, uh, Ryan Johnson or whoever, like say like, I agree, I pledge, you know, that I will, whatever. And I think Let's that would be do a start. It. This is great. Yeah. This is, this is the best thing to come out of a podcast in the history of podcasts. <laughs> Since 1775. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from this subject, which I, I think we will probably be returning to in future weeks because I think we might write up this like manifesto. Um, tech news. 
So this is the man transitions are my favorite part of this job, <laughs> but I did not land that one. So That's um, okay. sometimes the non transition is the, is landing. <laughs> remember two or three weeks ago at the end of the episode, Michelle was like, Charles, your transitions were spot on this week. It felt so good. And yeah. uh, this is, this is not one of those weeks, but that's okay. Um, so in tech news, FX home, if you guys don't know FX Home, they make like an editing compositing application. It's popular. It's very cool. You should check it out. It's free. It's got a free tier similar to Resolve's free tier. There's a lot of cool stuff for it. Um, that's called HitFilm, uh, which is not my favorite name, but whatever. FX Home, cool company. They came out with something very, very cool, which is called CamTrack AR. And it is an app. It's free or you can pay for an upgrade and we'll talk about what you get with the upgrade. But what it does is let's say you're shooting some video on your iPhone. It can use all of the sensors in your iPhone because the your iPhone has all of these crazy augmented reality sensors like infrared sensors and accelerometers and all of these things that can tell you all this stuff about what's going on with your phone. And it can, and it can use it as tracking data. So let's say you want to do one of those classic things where you're like I'm doing a uh, like Fight Club had this shot where it's like panning over a living room and you're seeing all the IKEA catalog prices appearing over all of the things in the catalog and it and the price is like attached to the item so the camera's panning and then the price like appears and it's sitting it, it's as if it's sitting on the couch right in order to do that you need to do a really good track of the couch and we all have all these techniques for doing it with you know Buju or Mocha or all this stuff and After Effects and you have to run a track on it and recreate the camera and all those things this just does it. Like literally you just point at the couch and then you pan around and it uses all the AR tools to just track the couch. So you can just like automatically put any composite you want right on it. And it's just going to sit perfectly on the couch, perfectly tracked in a free app. Now, if you want to pay for the upgrade, you can then take that track data and it can export that track data into a JSX file that you can take into After Effects. So you use the app for free, you, you can do the composite in the app or you can use it in HitFilm. But if you wanna keep using After Effects, which they understand, many people are attached to After Effects, um, you can pay for the upgrade and then do the thing. This is super cool. This is also really cool for me because it's in this really interesting tech space where like, I'm really ready for the next big camera announcement from a Blackmagic or a Red or an Alexa. It's probably not gonna be Airy. They innovate in a lot of things. They don't innovate in this. It'll probably be Blackmagic and Red. I'm really excited for them to say, and it runs Android and you can install apps and we have all this other stuff in it. We have an accelerometer and we have all these things because this app is super cool on an iPhone and an iPhone can shoot nice stuff, but it can't actually do everything you want when you're telling a story. like you know, there's focus control and low, low light noise and other things. Like there's a reason why big feature films are still shot on real cameras, but I wish those real cameras could run Android so I could install this app on it so that I could just immediately have all of my track data just right off the bat, like bam, and then immediately do my track in camera. I think that'd be really cool. And I think that's something I'd put my money on black magic in terms of who's going to do it, but I'm excited. You can play with it right now. CamTrack AR is available for Android and iOS. It is out there. Oh, it's only available for iOS. It'll be out for Android soon. Come on, let's be real. Um, but it's iOS only for now. Check it out. CamTrack AR from FX home. All right. And then finally we have an ask no film school question from Nick Alexander. Uh, Nick Alexander asks, I'm beginning my second documentary feature and plan to fundraise via either Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Our estimated budget is about $120,000. i am directing. 
And should we offer these investors a percentage of the movie's profits? If so, what's the typical ratio in dollar donation to percentage of profit? Um, and that's a really great question. The first thing I can say is you can't do that with Kickstarter or Indiegogo. By law, those platforms do not let you pay back money to investors. Because if you have someone investing and expecting a return, that falls under securities law in America and in most European countries. Something about your photo makes me think you're in England, but I'm going to I'm gonna keep answering as if you're in America. Um, and the reason why is because there used to be these like hucksters and like deceivers who would show up and try and sell you like railroad bonds and stuff. And they'd say it was an investment and you're going to get your money back. And they would defraud people. And so we have securities law in this country to prevent that from happening. And so if you want to offer a security, if you want to offer something as an investment, you actually need a lot of paperwork. You need a lot of like certifications. There are things called certified investors who are people who are allowed to invest sort of freely in more risky things. There's all sorts of stuff you have to do. So Kickstarter and Indiegogo, don't do that. You are not allowed to promise to return funds. Kickstarter and Indiegogo are donations for which you can give rewards. That's it. That's all you can do. Like you could sign so a script. Would, you could send them a yeah. still. <laughs> you could get yeah. real creative and they could be meaningless you could host things. A party. Or they could be very posters. meaningful. Yeah. yeah. Like. I would look at a bunch of other films and see what they give away. A lot of people give away signed posters. A lot of people give away signed DVDs. A lot of people give away t-shirts. A lot of people give away a set visit for a big donation, but they're donations. However, securities laws got loosened a couple of years ago, specifically because of People like you, people are like, oh, wait a minute. I want to be able to pay these people back. So there's platforms like WeFunder now. We had an article from one of our regular writers, Micah Van Hove, um, who is a big fan of the Annie Broadway soundtrack. Um, just want to drop that out there. Uh, he wrote an article about financing a project on WeFunder. There's a bunch of other platforms out there that are very specifically designed to allow people to invest in your project and recoup. So you can look into those platforms and those platforms will have a lot of models for you where you'll be able to see a lot of examples of, oh, here's what other projects have made on similar things. And here's what other projects are um, sort of um, doing as well. WeFunder is going to take a cut, obviously. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple other sort of things to keep in mind as you sort of figure this out. A waterfall is often the analogy that's used where some people get paid earlier and then other people get paid later. So a lot of times on these projects say, all of your investors might be able to get their money back. And then once everyone's gotten their money back, once everyone's recouped, then the percentages might change. So maybe the first 100% return goes to your investors. You get nothing. None, no, none of your actors, I know it's a doc, but you know, a lot of times if you're making an indie feature, your actors will get a back end or something. But none of that is until after the investors recoup. And then once the investors recoup, and they recoup dollar for dollar, or sometimes 200%, say, once they recoup, then... It changes once it then it goes into a new breakdown once it goes from um net profits once you start having uh, once it goes into gross profits to net profits where you actually start getting real profit then it'll change but you might have an you might have an actor that you want to secure who wants to recoup alongside the investors who wants to recoup from the first dollar not just from when it goes into profit so there's all sorts of things that are probably bigger than we can talk about in this podcast yeah and i would just throw out like i've worked on some projects where we where we structured things that way it's important to try and have like a lawyer working with you for some of those yes. things but i would definitely say like uh, it it can help with with talent 
if you're casting talent that's union and you're getting like one of these ultra low budget, like SAG exceptions or something like that. Um, but I, I do want to reiterate and reemphasize that we have some stories up on no film school. One that is called, is this the future of indie film finance? It's all about how our own Micah Van Hove has been working with WeFunder and has done a couple projects with them. Some that are in currently still in pre-production, but you know, we did an interview. We talked a lot about WeFunder in general. We've talked to people who've done more work with them. And it's basically a way to do what Charles is outlining, um, to get people to finance your film as investors, like crowdsource, but not the Indiegogo way where it's donation. They're actually like film investors. And it's a cool way for people to invest in movies if you're interested in doing that. It's also a cool way for people to get movies made and have a relationship to their investors that isn't quite like some of the predatory or just plain old unfortunate ones that we've been talking about on this very podcast. Um, so if you're interested in things like creating a like worker-centric and a more fair filmmaking community and you want funding from people who believe in that, uh, this would be the kind of platform that could connect you to those people. Um, outside of the normal avenues. This episode has been so educational, by the way. <laughs> I, <have laughs> learned I hope so everybody much. agrees. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. That's the goal. <laughs> we're trying. We're, we're out here doing our thing. All right. Uh, we got to wrap it up so I can put my baby to bed. So, uh, Kath, do you have any pluggables to plug? Yeah. Um, so I'm a filmmaker. My short film, Parachute, is going to be screening... As part of New Filmmakers Los Angeles, uh, I it's guess. really good. Thank you so much. Not to interrupt your pluggables. I, this airs on Friday, right? So it would be sure, yes. today and tomorrow. That is Friday and Saturday, August 21st and 22nd. And I also am a festival programmer for Salute Your Shorts Film Festival, which if you're in LA, there is a drive-in opening night event tonight. Friday the 21st and um, the festival is also going to be online. So check it out. Salute your shorts film festival. Where is that drive-in event in LA? I'm just curious. It's in Simi Valley. So it's not officially LA, but it's not oh, that far. No, but that's like the big famous drive-in, right? In Simi Valley. It's something um, Brandeis university satellite campus or something like that. I'm not sure, but I've heard it's like beautiful. Uh, full disclosure. I don't live in LA, so I have not seen it, but the organizers have told me that it is an amazing space. There's going to be food trucks. It's a three hour long program. All the shorts are fantastic. I program them all. Like it's going to be so much fun. And I want to throw out, you've written for no film school before, but you've also written about programming shorts festivals, which That's is right. a cool, cool thing for people as a resource. If you search the site for shorts or for Kath Tolentino, you'll probably find it. But you know, anytime we can share insight from people who program festivals, I feel like that's just like that's invaluable. Yeah. Um, I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. Head over to nofilmschool.com. We are going to have some cool podcast interviews up soon because we've been talking with people who have features coming out this fall, as well as some people up for various Emmys. We have an interview that Darren James did with Walter Murch, one of the great editors uh, and influences in filmmaking. And if you haven't read the conversations with him that's a great filmmaking book um check us out of on facebook and make sure to follow us on twitter and also leave a comment 
rate, like, and subscribe the podcast. And send us questions at editor at nofilmschool.com and ask at nofilmschool.com. And last thing, I just want to highlight again, we still have an amazing free 100-page ebook that is available. All you have to do is subscribe to our newsletter, which gets you all of our great content. Um, it is uh, There's a video about it up on our YouTube channel, but it's on the site. It's uh, how to write a screenplay during quarantine. And it doesn't have to be related to your quarantine situation. It can just be how to write a screenplay because it's a 10-week program and it's awesome and you'll get a lot of great writing tips out of it. And I'm Charles Hain. I'm always on the Twitter and the Instagram at Charles Hain, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. And you can check out my web series, Salty Pirate, at saltypirate.tv. It's on the Amazon and the Ficto and the Vimeo VOD. And it is all about trying to run a small ethical business and finding it very difficult to do so. Um, because, you know, you want to be punk rock and then payroll is due. So <laughs> that should have been the tagline. Um, Kath, so much for joining us this week. And we will see you guys all next week. See you on the interwebs. Bye.